Origins, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, coast to coast and internationally. This is Joe Schuldenrein uh, presenting you with another broadcast of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, I don't know, but I assume that many of you are aware of the fact that we are now approaching the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, uh, a nautical disaster that has captivated both the professional archaeological community and uh, the public at large. It is a, uh, a phenomenon, one that has just transcended all bounds, really, in terms of interest. And uh, we're going to be discussing that particular catastrophe and its place in American history and international history, uh, as well as examining it in terms of the advances that have been made in archaeology uh, as a result of the discovery of that uh, wreckage in 1985. I am extremely pleased to have with me as a guest uh, the world-renowned, and especially American-renowned author Hampton Sides, who is, as I said, an expert in American history and a well-known author who's published on a variety of topics. He is the editor-at-large for Outside Magazine and has written for such periodicals as National Geographic, The New Yorker, Esquire, Men's Journal, and The Washington Post. His magazine, collected in numerous published anthologies, has been twice nominated for the National Magazine Awards section for feature writing. He has also published several uh, very successful and compelling novels, uh, the most prominent of which are Ghost Soldiers, which is a World War II narrative about the rescue of the Bataan Death March, Blood and Thunder, which is my favorite, which focuses on the life and times of the controversial frontiersman Kit Carson and his role in the conquest of the American West. And most recently, and this is a very captivating uh, publication, Hellhound on His Trail, which is about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the largest manhunt in American history to capture James Earl Ray, who pled guilty in 1969. And I assume many of the listenership are familiar with that particular story. It is my pleasure to introduce you, Hampton Sides. Thank you for appearing on the show. Oh, it's, a, it's my pleasure. Uh, so let me ask you, what drew your particular attention to the Titanic disaster, and, and what was the appeal for you in particular as a, a chronicler of, of, of American, major pivotal events in American history, and what, what, if anything in particular, about the Titanic drew your interest? Well, I, I, uh, there's something about the enduring quality of this thing, the fact that it won't go away, uh, the fact that it's just... Uh, in some circles, it's, it's almost as big as it ever was. Uh, and this 100th anniversary is really bringing all the Titanic geeks and freaks and uh, the, the whole subculture is, is sort of uh, coming out of the woodwork again. Uh, people just can't get enough of this, of this wreck. And there's so many facets to it, both historical, sociological. Um, it's an iconic ship and a, an a, iconic event. Um, the thing that drew me, though, probably more than anything else, was the, the way in which this uh, shipwreck has, has been a driver uh, of technology. Um, ever since it was discovered in 1985, uh, some of the real, really the leading minds and some of the 
some of the best uh, explorers and, and some of the best imaging technology um, has been brought to bear on this site. And um, specifically in my article in National Geographic, the cover story this month, um, is, is about how some new images were obtained. Um, they've done something that is really quite fascinating. Uh, in an expedition in 2010, uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution went down there and took all these images, uh, creating a massive sonar high-res uh, mosaic, which is a map of the entire uh, wreck site. So that for the first time, instead of looking at one murky propeller blade or one murky boiler uh, or one murky unidentified object somewhere on the floor, what we can see is a, a very high-def um, map of this entire graveyard, essentially, every object in it, um, and begin to see patterns um, uh, that begin to indicate things about how, it, how the ship broke up and exactly how and why and where it broke up. So it has a forensic, it has a forensic uh, application as well as a preservation application because they can see everything and know, know what they're trying to preserve down there as, as marine archaeologists. So it's a, it's a really interesting um, leap forward in terms of Titanic research, and that's what the article in National Geographic focuses on. As I read that article, I think I was most impressed by those technological advances. It obviously took uh, an event like the Titanic and a wreckage like that, which is so spectacular, to actually mobilize all these great minds at, at, at NOAA, National Oceanic uh, and Atmospheric Administration, as well as the Woods, Woods Hold people, and in no small measure, James Cameron. And who, James uh, Cameron, yeah, and also um, uh, Park Service has even been involved in this, uh, Marine Archaeology Division of the Park Service. A lot of, of, a lot of big names, a lot of big egos, a lot of big agencies, a <laughs> uh, little bit of infighting along the way, but um, all applying um, their expertise and, and their uh, wherewithal um, on this thing. I just don't really think of, you know, that there's very many other disaster zones or wreck sites that you can point to that would have this much uh, long-range appeal. Um, Pearl Harbor, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Ground Zero, uh, you know, certainly some some ancient archaeological sites in in, in uh, perhaps in Greece or or Rome, but there's, you know you can count them on one hand, and this is one of them. Uh, it just it just happens to be two and a half miles uh, below the surface of the ocean, which presents a lot of very particular um, problems in terms of how do you get there and how do you stay down there and, and long enough to to capture these images um, and. Uh, the technique that they used was to, to fly these submarines, uh, submersibles, uh, at low altitude over the wreck site in these very precise grids. They call it mowing the lawn. And these things are taking hundreds and hundreds of images per, per minute. And they get all these images and they geo-reference them and rectify them and put them into a computer and stitch it all together into this enormous mosaic, which consists of over a million images. And, um, you know, this is technology that just really didn't exist 10 years ago. 
Well, here's the thing. I, as an archaeologist, and, and, and a, a great portion of our listenership are, are archaeologists, uh, we're trying to sort of expand our message outward. But I think one of the phenomenal achievements of this uh, particular form of research is that what these professionals are doing with the Titanic is really going to expand its, its, its scope and it's going to radiate outward to wreckage uh, exploration elsewhere across the world. I mean, they're developing the state-of-the-art technologies that are going to be used elsewhere. And I think it was something like the Titanic because of its uh, popular hook, if you will, that brings all these people together, folks like Cameron, who have the ability to, to sort of uh, bring the message to the outside world, as well as the, the, uh, the classic scientists and yeah. geophysicists and archaeological professionals who, I have to tell you, are also drawn to this because of its sexiness and because of its appeal, and it just brings together so many people, not just from the professional community, but also from the commercial and public sectors who are trying to disseminate this information all over the world. And it would take something like the, the Titanic to bring this together. How, did you, how do you see this working? How did you, uh, so, because you, you had obviously an inside track on this, how did you find the nature of the communications between all these people who are involved in this? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not always good. There's a level of competition. There are definitely some guys who don't get along with some other guys. They all do seem to be guys, by the way. I, I don't know what it is about <laughs> this wreck. Uh, it seems to attract guys, but... Um, they, uh, you know, there's some, you want to call it institutional politics and various people who have, have various kinds of claims on this wreck. I mean, there's the RMST, which is a company that owns the, that has the salvage rights, uh, and they have their own agenda. And then, and then there's Woods Hole, which was involved from the very beginning in uh, its discovery uh, and imaging. Then you have Bob Ballard, who was the co-discoverer and has moved on to other things, but is very much involved in this thing still. Uh, and by the way, he has a documentary coming out uh, next week as part of a two-part National Geographic Channel special on the Titanic, one with James Cameron, one with uh, Bob Ballard. Um, then you got, yeah, you do have Bob Ballard, who, uh, excuse me, uh, Jim Cameron, who's very interesting. I mean, he made this movie, but his real interest is in the wreck itself and has been down there 33 times and helped design and uh, pay for the the building of these special robots that are able to go into the staterooms of the Titanic. I mean, one of the problems has been that the, 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 the little fiber optic robots that they were using were kind of clumsy. They would get hung up on things down there. Uh, they would lose visibility, and uh, it was very expensive and dangerous, and they were always worried they were going to lose one of these guys. Uh, but but uh, Cameron developed these really small, very nimble, very agile robots that were able to bring back just incredible pictures of the of the interior of the ship. So so you got so you got all these different camps, if you will, and individuals who uh, can lay claim to this wreck, but but they you know they do at times get together and they work together on on these problems to try to solve them and uh, you know I, I kind of liken it to NASA and and uh, Apollo it's sort of like something it takes something sexy as you say as a hook to to keep to keep the interest there but what's really interesting is the spin-off technology uh, that results I mean this is stuff that can be applied to lots of other wrecks 
some of the technology that Woods Hole used with this was used recently to find the uh, what was it French the French airliner that went down uh, after it left Brazil a few years ago right. mm-hmm. in the Atlantic. Uh, they they located uh, it was Woods Hole technology that located uh, the wreck. Um, so you know there are definitely practical uh, spin-off um, applications to all this stuff, and, and it'll be really interesting to see where it goes. I, I think one of the interesting elements of this from the archaeological point of view is that there's there's this ongoing clash and it, it's it's uh, it's highlighted most recently by actually one of the National Geographic programs where uh, there is archaeology as a profession and there's archaeology as an adventure and as a money-making venture and this is a classic case of where you have a private company that got involved in in the uh, in the uh, salvage, if you will, and they got into sort of uh, commercializing this element of it, and then you had the professional community, which is very very uh, concerned with the maintenance and the historic preservation of the wreckage and the the need to do purely scientific research on it. And I'm sure, as you documented in your piece, that you are privy to the conflict from the outset between the professional community that really is involved in the ethical element of this, maintaining it, preserving it, uh, allowing just accredited scientists to undertake uh, certain types of research for it, and yet you have the folks from the private sector, and this is America, so the private sector is certainly underscored as a major uh, contributor to uh, to the economy and 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 to American uh, America in general, as far as that's concerned. You have this potential conflict between this RMST operation and Ballard himself and the preservation community, the, the legal archaeological community. How did you see that emerging? And I understand that you've documented that it's changed a lot and there's more cooperation. How did, how did that scenario evolve? Yeah, well, after Ballard discovered the wreck in 85, uh, he made a decision not to bring anything up. He could have brought something up, even just one teacup, and he would have had claim, uh, legal claim to the wreck. Uh, the law, you know, the, the, legal, the legalities of this are very complicated, but um, he would have had probably had legitimate claim to, uh, to uh, as Salver in possession. Mm-hmm. But he chose not to. Uh, and so RMST comes along the very, I think it was the very next year, and began to bring things up. At first, they were widely criticized uh, for the first decade or, or more for being um, not exactly professional, for being a little cheesy about, about how they presented this stuff. Uh, there were questions about how well and how professionally they were keeping and storing and curating all this material. Um, and uh, there were just lots of questions about the personnel of this organization and uh, their motives and, you know, were they just going to scoop all this stuff up and sell it to the highest bidder? What, was, what were they really after? Um, but the company did evolve, and in recent years, really just in the last two years, um, they began to cooperate with uh, with the other players. And the other players are mainly NOAA, uh, Park Service. Um, there's some French explorers involved in this, uh, and uh, Cameron, of course, and uh, and Ballard. Uh, now Ballard really won't play ball with these guys at all. He's sort of on the continuum. He's the purist. Uh, he's the the, the Strict constructionist, if you will. He he says, leave everything down there. Don't bring anything up. It's a hallowed site. It's a graveyard, and it should be left alone. Um, but 
everyone else has at least tried to cooperate with RMST in this latest venture, which was creating this sonar map that I described earlier. Uh, RMST actually paid for it, led the, op- uh, the expedition. Woods Hole applied the technology and was actively involved in it, but uh, RMST actually paid for it. So they've changed their colors a little bit. They're really, I think, becoming aware of their role as custodians and recognizing that although there's certainly money to be made, I mean, it's a, it's a for-profit company, uh, it's also uh, an archaeological site and a place that has great significance to the, the, the world community. So it's a difficult, tricky uh, role they have to play. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, I think they want to sell. They want to get out of this. <laughs> they want to sell it. Um, but they're not legally allowed to sell. Um, um, they're not allowed to sell it piecemeal. They want to. They have to sell it all, which means they would have to sell it to somebody who is most likely going to try to build a museum or create you know, some sort of way to curate this and, and keep it in perpetuity. So, um, but you're right. You've, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a long term debate that goes on in archaeological circles about what, you know, what would she, what, what's the proper way to treat these sites? Um, because, you know, they, they do have historic, uh, a, a historic role to play. Um, you don't want to just pull things up. Um, at the same time, you're working against the clock because nature is doing its part to ruin these sites. Uh, you know, maybe in the next hundred years there won't be a Titanic uh, wreck site, or there'll be very little left. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, microbes are eating it, and uh, uh, it's it's just breaking down. It's being digested. It's uh, caving in on itself. In so many years, it won't even be there. So, so these are interesting questions. And uh, you know, what's interesting about the Titanic is being wreck number one, I guess you might call it, or, or the Everest of wrecks. Um, it provides an interesting debate that um, that has implications on all wrecks around the world. And uh, have you actually gone down there? Were you able no. to get down there and take a look? No, 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 no. I mean, this piece was written on a deadline, and, I, and there's only a, a narrow window where they even go out there. Uh, it's also true. <laughs> I uh, I found, in, as I've gotten older, I'm quite claustrophobic, and uh, I don't know that I would be a great candidate for getting in one of those little submersibles about the size of a, uh, you know, of a closet and, and spending eight, nine hours down there. I think I'd, it might drive me insane. So I'm probably not, I'm probably not the, the best candidate for that, for that assignment. But, but uh, you know, they sent me all over the country to, to, to look at artifacts and to talk to experts and to meet with uh, uh, Cameron and, and Ballard and to go to Woods Hole and and up to Newfoundland, so it, it's a very uh, it's a very wide wide ranging piece, and, and one of the, one of the most interesting assignments I've I've ever had. Well, on that note, your claustrophobia and your travels around the world to find additional information about this, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come right back with Hampton Sides and continue our discussion on the Titanic and its potential for archaeological innovation after these words. Yeah. <laughs> 
Opinion. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Professionals and families who are dealing with autism face challenges that can lead to many questions. Questions about how to understand, communicate, and support each other. Every week, Autism Today with host Dr. Patrick J. Rydell will focus on dealing with the diagnosis and the day-to-day challenges of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Rydell will combine his 30 years of experience along with featured guests from the ASD field to provide their insights and answers to your questions. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Want to hear about what's going on in the world of fashion, beauty, gossip, and politics? Then you'll want to tune in every Wednesday to the Voice America Variety Channel. Face Forward with entrepreneur and beauty consultant Sarah McNamara is honest talk, great guests, and a cool vibe with a lot of fun. Sarah and her guy Friday, Anthony, will turn you on to what's hot and what's not. This is a radio show custom made for you. Tune in to Face Forward, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the East, 11 a.m. in the West on Voice America Variety. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back on a very special episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And we are discussing uh, the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic and the amazing finds and the quantum leaps in research and development that have occurred as a result of a very loose consortium of researchers, professionals, and, and of course, the movie maker James Cameron, who have brought together a variety of skills and talents to uh, make incredible progress in, in the archaeology and in the dissemination of that archaeology to the public uh, at the site of the Titanic. And, and I was talking to Hampton uh, during the break, and I'm amazed that there are all these players in there. doesn't really seem to be a formal infrastructure, and yet people are playing in the same sandbox. And how are they doing that, Hampton? How is that working, actually? And, and is there no overarching supervisory role, or does nobody take responsibility? Can various interest groups just sort of come in and, and do what they want? And how does, how does the consortium work? Well, you know, it's, it's an, uh, the Titanic is in international waters, so no one really owns it. Even, even RMST, the company that has a salvage right, doesn't exactly own the ship itself or the site itself. So, you know, 
anyone can go down there. Anyone can do whatever they want up to a certain point. But um, how does R how does RMST get the the uh, unique rights, the uh, sole well, rights to do this work? It's very complicated. They have to they have to exercise their right every year or every couple of years, or they they're in danger of losing it. Um, it's based on kind of first come first serve in the law of the sea and. There's a there's a maritime court in Virginia, in Norfolk, Virginia, that is it seems to be the one that um, has the legal authority and the jurisdiction to uh, to uphold this. Um, and they're always worried that they're going to lose it. So they that's why they they you know you have to keep going out there and exercising your right and pulling up stuff um, or or doing something tangible that you can point to to say this is what I'm doing to. To justify my ownership, that's why uh, this this very expensive imaging expedition of 2010 happened. It was uh, the the court judged that they would um, they they didn't have to bring anything up. They could also just take images, really really good images, and they argued that this was just as valid uh, in terms of demonstrating their um, ownership uh, of the salvage rights. Um, as actually bringing up yet another teacup or you know another piece of metal or whatever, but um, so, right. so the There's court has international. Does the court have international jurisdiction? No, no, it doesn't. Um, it's very complicated. I, I don't know. I don't understand it all. But it has to do with the ownership, the, the original ownership of the boat, which was uh, Cunard, but it was also uh, ultimately owned uh, uh, by American interests, um, and it's. Uh, the law, the laws of marine archaeology in international waters are extremely complicated, and I, I'm not even qualified to get into the nitty gritty of it. It's it's very very it's very much based on precedent, and uh, who got there first, and and who who sort of exerts their uh, their will their willpower over the thing in subsequent years. Um, but uh, you're right; they aren't the only ones who are playing in the sandbox. I mean, Noah. Has an interest. The National Park Service has an interest. Individuals like Cameron, who, you know, he he has an interest because he made a movie about it and has has the money and the wherewithal all, and now the really the expertise and knowledge to pay for going down there. He's been down there 33 times, and um, so he's become a player in the whole thing, um, as has Ballard uh, and, and Woods Hole uh, has been most actively involved in the imaging of the wreck. Um, so you've got all these players, and it's, you know, you ask how they get along. I think they have good days and bad days. <laughs> um, <laughs> who's funding it? Who's, uh, who's really driving it, the funding? I mean, an academic grant or even a NOAA grant, I mean, they could get some money, but certainly the types of money that's obviously going into this is, is money that would seem to me would come from a lot of pr- private sources. And I'm yeah, guessing... well, National Geographic uh, Society has put a lot of money into this. Um, Different television shows like National Geographic Channel, also Discovery Channel, History Channel. You know, um, now just as the Titanic is kind of that sexy thing that gets archaeologists interested in, in things, the hundredth anniversary of the Titanic is is sort of the sexy moment. I guess it's been a driver for a lot of new research and new analysis and and new expeditions to the wreck. So, um, you know, this is this is kind of going to be kind of a, a miniature little you know supernova of interest in the titanic as we approach the anniversary on the 15th um lots of stuff's coming out and um 
uh, including these two really great National Geographic Channel um, documentaries, one by Cameron and one by Ballard. So um, look for those. But um, right. lots of people putting money into this. But, you know, in the end, um, it, it's, it's uh, you know, because no one owns it, it's just sort of like they, they, they agree to cooperate only because they choose to. No, no one's forcing them to. Um, there, is, there is nobody who owns it or who really runs the show. Um, it's kind of a, it's a, uh, what would you call it, like um, uh, a community uh, of um, like-minded entities that uh, right. may choose to work together on something like this. Take, take us through a little bit your, your own odyssey in, in working through the history. How did you get started? Who did you meet? Uh, what type of interests do the individual parties have? And what I'm really interested in, actually, I think a lot of people are as well, is Ballard makes this amazing discovery in 85, and then where does it go? I mean, how, and well, actually, before that, let's, let's, let's look at the period from 1912 to 1985. Where was it then? Because it captivated our imaginations and people's imaginations since, uh, since the wreck went down. Uh, what about the early years? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, it's just so deep that there really just wasn't the technology that allowed it to be, to, to be discovered until probably the, maybe the 60s, uh, late 60s. Um, there was a lot of fantasizing about how it might be found or perhaps explosives could be used somehow to raise the ship. Uh, no one knew what condition the ship was in. Most people seem to think that it was intact, uh, that it was in one piece, you know, that it looked like a ship. In other words, um, it was um, there was a couple of kind of rogue individuals and various characters in the in the sixties and seventies who went out looking for it. Um, some came close, but uh, ultimately, uh, you know, they never they never hit pay dirt. Um, it was very expensive and very complicated, and the technology was still evolving. Um, Ballard, uh, founded in eighty five, uh, sort of by luck. Um, along with a, a, a French explorer that was on the same team with him. Um, but they, um, they man- managed to find it. And once they, find, you know, once they found it, uh, it was like they had opened up the floodgates. There was just right. a major, um, it was a sensational thing, you know, because people were beginning to think, well, it's never going to happen. Uh, they'll never find this thing. Um, and uh, Ballard, you know, Ballard, felt like he had unleashed um, forces of, of commercialism that he, he lived to regret. Um, he, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier, he, he's a purist. He, he didn't think anyone should be taking stuff off this thing. He was elated to have found it, but then his elation very quickly turned to uh, uh, regret. Um, that, you know, this, uh, this was, you know, 1,500 people died on this thing, and it's a graveyard, and, you know, we shouldn't, turn this into a tourist attraction or um, something that you plunder. Um, but, of course, that did happen. Um, a group of French explorers um, in tandem with some American investors started this RMST, I think, in, I think it was in 86, the year after Ballard's discovery. And they started, you know, very actively pulling up stuff, 6,000 artifacts they've pulled up, including some really big pieces that required cranes to get out of there, big pieces of the hull and stuff. And they were widely criticized for it, but they, you know, they, they've done an okay job, I think. Once they've got it up out of there, they've certainly gotten better at 
at curating the stuff. I went to one of the shows, you know, they, they have these traveling shows, and uh, one of them, the, the biggest one right now is in, is in Las Vegas, of all places, um, on the Strip, in the Luxor Hotel. And, wow. Uh, it's kind of, you know, cheesy, and, uh, you know, I was very skeptical, but once I got in there, it, it uh, had to admit it was very well done and um, very moving. Uh, it's very powerful to see this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, I mentioned Ballard being the purest on this thing. You know, then the, I suppose the other polar opposite is, you know, take up as much stuff as you can as quickly as possible, the greedy kind of counterpart to that. And I guess I'm sort of in the middle. I, I think it's, I don't know if those objects down there are doing anyone any good rotting on the floor of the ocean. Um, they're powerful, they're meaningful, they're moving, they're interesting, and if they can be removed in a careful way, in a professional way, uh, and, and stored correctly and curated professionally, um, I don't have a moral or ethical problem with it. I, I think I think it uh, it's going to do more um, good than harm. But um, you know, but there's along that continuum, there's just a whole spectrum of uh, of opinions on on this question as it pertains to all wrecks. Well, well, Ballard's position in particular seems to be kind of confusing because he is obviously aware of the fact that as time goes on, the organisms are going to gnaw away at the remains, and there's not going to be anything left. And how does he reconcile that with uh, with his with with the ethics of all of this? I mean, it's going to go away eventually. Yeah. Uh, it's either going to go away with information that will be procured by taking it up, or it's just going to disappear. So what is his position that way? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of like arguing about some sort of ethical um, question while, while the site itself is decaying so fast that, you know, it, it, it'll be an academic point in a few years or a few hundred years anyway. I agree. I think I asked him that question. I can't remember exactly what he said. He... he he says, yes, that's true, but, you know, in the end, uh, you know, it's, it's a graveyard, and it's a hallowed site, and he, he kind of sometimes wishes he hadn't even found it. Um, right. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's probably very good that someone in this community is taking that position, even though I don't, I don't personally agree with it, uh, because, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's an important point. And you almost have to exaggerate your point sometimes to, to, uh, to offset some of the other arguments that are coming from the other camps. I think one of, one of the most uh, compelling parts of the movie that Cameron made, which was clearly the biggest, block, if I'm not mistaken, it's the biggest blockbuster of all time, correct? Uh, it's right up there, except possibly his other movie, Avatar. Oh, Avatar, right, yeah, okay. So, so a lot of it has to do record. with him, very clearly. But one of the most moving elements of the discovery uh, that he filmed and the way he staged it, which I thought was very intriguing, was at that time, which was 1997, there were still one or two people who actually remembered it. Uh, and now I understand that the last surviving person has passed away. Who yeah, was, uh, a couple a, years ago, girl. yeah a couple of years ago, but there were at least one or two people who actually talked about it, and I found that to be extremely moving and an extremely interesting contribution to a film that was obviously a wonderful romance and an 
excellent piece of, of uh, technological presentation on, on how the discovery went, uh, apparently, when, when Ballard was doing it. But the recollections and, and the, the artifacts themselves and, and, and the, the oral accounts, now, did you come across in your research any uh, individuals who had any interests, family members, uh, uh, children, grandchildren, who, who, who expressed any kind of particular interest in this, or no? Uh, well, yes. Uh, y- you know, along the way, I met some people who were dis- direct descendants. Uh, maybe the most interesting thing I found was up in a museum in, um, in Newfoundland, St. John's, um, and also in Halifax, Nova Scotia. There's interesting artifacts. Uh, and there's a, a, a mass grave that's in Halifax um, where most of the victims that were found uh, were buried. And there was this sort of uh, unknown child um, whose shoes had been preserved. Uh, they, did, they didn't have the name of the child. He was found floating in his, with his life preserver. Uh, and um, uh, you look at these shoes, and, you know, there's just something very moving about that realizing they were taken off a child about two years old who was on that boat and, and not knowing the name somehow seemed to more, make it more powerful. Um, however, technology uh, intervened at a certain point. Uh, people realized that they could uh, take a DNA sample of the skeletal, uh, the skeletal remains of this child and compare them with the descendants of uh, or, or relatives of of the possibilities. They knew it was one of like 10 kids, I think. And uh, so they did this DNA study and basically narrowed it down and narrowed it down and finally were able to name this kid. Uh, his name was Sidney. I uh, can't remember his last name. They knew which family. Oh, Sidney Goodwin from uh, a family. The entire family was wiped out on the ty- Titanic. Seven people, uh, the parents and five kids. Um, and uh, suddenly all this stuff becomes... And it stops being abstract discussion of archaeology and technology, and it becomes very personal. Um, then, you know, you start looking at pictures of this family and realizing uh, their loss. I mean, the entire family is gone, and their extended family was, that was waiting for them on, uh, on the other end in uh, Buffalo, New York, uh, waiting for them to, you know, hopefully be at least one survivor. And, and of course, there weren't any. Um, so it drives home the tragedy. I mean, it's it's uh, it's still very personal to a lot of people, and uh, um, I think becomes more interesting because of that. It's it's not just an abstract uh, piece. You know, it's not just a piece of metal. It's it's a story of people. And you came across several cases like that, or this is the only uh, one. In uh, the museum in um, St. John's. <laughs> I met a woman who was just literally in tears talking about how she was a descendant of this person, and she pointed to his name on the wall, uh, and uh, he was a survivor of the Titanic, but she talked about how it, it affected him and you know, his, what I guess they didn't have a name for it back then, but it was probably post-traumatic stress, essentially, and you know, how sure. he was never really able to get his life together. And uh, this was her, let's see, this was her grandfather, uh, and she was in tears, you know. And so, you know, there are cases like that for sure. And whenever I met those people, it it, uh, it brought it home to me. And on that note, we're going to go back to break, and we'll be back with uh, our final segment after these words.
talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. This is Joe Shulden Ryan on uh, our concluding segment on this magnificent interview that I'm having with Hampton Sides, who just undertook an investigative uh, research piece on the uh, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, specifically on April 15th. Uh, 1912 when the ship went down and we've been talking about uh, the unusual collaboration of various interest groups ranging from the commercial to the pure research and, and how they've been uh, producing a very productive results despite the fact that they may have diverse interests and objectives and I think one of the issues that I find very compelling is how uh, Hampton Sides structured his research and how he went about doing it. And he had mentioned during the break that it started in Newfoundland, and, and, and that was obviously the first place that there was any communication between the ship and, and the outside world. And, and Hampton, in your piece, you had made mention 
of a 14-year-old boy who possibly may have picked up a radio signal from the ship as it was going down, and could you take it from there and, and discuss uh, your, your trip from Newfoundland going forward? Yeah, well, the, the, the Titanic has a lot of different homes, I guess you'd say. One of them is New, Newfoundland, uh, because that's where the, the first distress signals uh, arrived, the Marconi signals, um, some of the research and uh, research, excuse me, the search and rescue vessels that were sent out uh, left from, from uh, Nova Scotia and from Newfoundland. Um, so I wanted to go there and get as close to the Titanic as I could. I actually wanted to fly over the site itself, but um, uh, was was fogged out. Bad weather uh, wouldn't allow us to fly for a whole week, so had to do other things. But, um, of course, the ship was built in Belfast and and uh, sailed from um, from England. Uh, had one stop in um, uh, Queenstown, um, Ireland, which was its last stop. Um, so all these different homes. Um, in the states, it has some other homes that are a little bit counterintuitive. One of them is Atlanta, Georgia, which is where the uh, RMS Titanic Company is located, and most of the artifacts that aren't on display somewhere are stored in this uh, climate-controlled warehouse in a fairly nondescript um, neighborhood of uh, near Buckhead uh, in Atlanta. So that was mm-hmm. interesting. I went there and uh, met with some of their experts and some of their curators and saw some of these amazing artifacts, uh, things like you know a champagne bottle that still had the cork in it, still filled with champagne, uh, that was plucked off the floor of the ocean, and uh, zillions of other artifacts, that you know, pieces of jewelry and clothing, and um, particularly anything leather. Uh, leather survives well uh, in, in the desert right. for, for a variety of reasons, but having to do with the, the tanning process um, mm-hmm. that retards some of these microbes. But um, another home, of course, was, uh, was uh, the, the RMST display in uh, in. Las Vegas, uh, this fairly yeah, fairly amazing um, uh, display of, of artifacts there. Um, and then I had to go see Cameron, of course, at his compound in Malibu, because he, uh, he has devoted as much time to this as just about anyone. Um, and uh, he, you know, he's just, he gets very intense when he talks about this subject. Uh, a little bit of Herman Melville there. Uh, a little... <laughs> He's a little obsessed, I think, um, but but you know he uh, he's a legitimate explorer now, and you know, he's really uh, sunk in the time and energy and money um, to figuring this thing out, and it was very interesting to to talk to. So um, I structured the piece really around this idea of bouncing around to all these different homes uh, because it you know it it's it's really uh, it's really hard to say you know who owns the Titanic. The Titanic right. sort of Bits and pieces of it are scattered around all over the place now. Um, so um, so that's, that's sort of how I structured the piece. Where do you see the research going, and where do you see this venture moving to? Obviously, there are quantum leaps in the science of it all, the remote sensing imagery 
uh, is now even uh, being applied to other contexts, as you had mentioned, in the aircraft disasters. And we're looking at a lot of that high technology to look at, at, at prehistoric settlements and early villages in the Near East, which is uh, a direct function of the shuttle imagery that, that's coming out of, out of the Titanic exploration. Where do you see it going, and, and what's the direction it's taking right now? Well, there's, there's a lot of things that are being talked about, um, specifically to the Titanic itself. Um, there's an, they've been talking about, like, what, what would be the next big thing? Now that we've got this, this map, essentially, this treasure map or crime scene map, whatever you want to call it, right. um, what do we do next? And uh, one of the things that's talked about is uh, if it could be done, and this is a very, very tricky thing, um, is to excavate uh, the uh, uh, starboard side of the bow and locate the iceberg damage, the actual wound that sank the Titanic. It's, it's actually buried in the silt. Um, it's sort of lying on its own secret. And the idea is if, if they could somehow brace the Titanic, make sure it's not going to fall, make sure it's not going to um, create any further damage, and then to excavate um, down to the iceberg damage, that it might be very interesting in terms of uh, how, how bad was the damage, um, how, how, how many watertight com- compartments were exposed, exactly where were they com- exposed, um, because, you know, no one actually saw this damage. Um, it was certainly not from the outside. Uh, there were some people down in the holds who, who saw some evidence of it, but, um, you know, it's one of the bigger mysteries here for those who care about this stuff, is, um, you know, let's look at the thing that actually sank the ship. Um, it's never been seen before. So that's something that's talked about. Well, um, I, that, that was one of the intriguing elements that showed up in your piece where I think you had said, based obviously on discussions with some of the scientists, that the major damage and what really caused the sinking was the scraping, basically, of the hull against the ice and it caused more damage than even a head-on collision with the iceberg would have caused. Is that correct? Yeah, they, most people seem to th- think that the Titanic would have survived a head-on collision. Right. Um, that, that this, this was uh, something that, you know, in endeavoring to, to avoid the head-on collision, they, they ended up sideswiping this um, I- iceberg, which, you know, that's, that was probably a, a good instinct to try to avoid this thing, and that's what they tried to do, but they, they just barely uh, swiped it, and by nicking it, and by essentially puncturing uh, not one, but not two, not three, but five of these watertight compartments, uh, they ensured that the, that the ship would sink. It was just a matter of time. And the engineer who was on board uh, that maiden voyage, I mean, he knew immediately. Once he was able to determine that five of those holds were flooding, he said, it's over. You know, he'd done the math. He already knew it. Um, so it was like a one-in-a-million kind of um, collision that could cause that. And, right. And they got that on the maiden voyage of the ship, <laughs> which uh, goes far in explaining why this ship is so and why this tragedy is so endlessly fascinating. Uh, the odds against this happening are, were huge. Um, and yet it happened. And yet right. it happened. Um, you ask what else might you know be done here, and and really um, the focus I think after this map that that we now have 
you know, uh, a sense of where everything is down there. The lights are on. They can sort of see the relationships between all the different um, parts strewn on the seabed. Uh, what's going to happen probably in Titanic research is uh, there's going to be a little less focus on the, on the bow. The bow looks like a ship. It's kind of sexy. It's been photographed a million times. It, it's more intact. Um, right. But they've avoided the stern section. Um, partly because it's just murky and it's dangerous. It's got all these shards, things that you can get caught on, um, you know, a little fiber optic cab- cable wraps around something and, you know, you've just lost a $10 million submarine or whatever. So they've just tended to avoid the debris field and the stern section. But the stern section is actually where the, at least from a forensic point of view, where the, where the interest lies. Um, there's more stuff there. Uh, the, the, stu- the, the relationships between all the different things there um, has more to say about how the ship broke up at the surface. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more research on the stern um, now that we kind of know where everything is. And it'll be interesting what, what, uh, what will be learned from all this. And uh, who's going to fund it? Is RMST going to fund most of it, or will it be coming out of private sources? It'll be both. It'll be both. Uh-huh. Um, I think. I think that uh, you know, d- definitely television shows have been a driver for for these things. Nothing happens anymore without there being a documentary made. You know, um, clearly, yeah. Uh, um, and I think that um, it's possible that universities will get involved in this because it's. Fairly sexy, but also serious research. Um, and yeah, but the universities don't have that kind of money. Uh, they mean. don't, but but um, that's true. But they, you know, various archaeology ar- archaeology departments have been able to get grants. Um, you know, so I guess it's more of a patchwork of of, of yeah. grants and um, people w- who work work for universities. Um, Ballard has a, a, an association with. Um, University of Rhode Island, I believe it is. Um, uh-huh. And um, so, anyway, I think that I think that uh, that's a good question, though. It is enormously expensive enterprise just to get down there. I mean, just to get oh, the just, ship yeah. to the site. You know, it's uh, 300 miles off the coast of St. John's uh, of Newfoundland. Uh, Newfoundland. Then, you know, once you're there, you're spending I don't know six, seven, eight thousand dollars a day just to keep a ship there, and then the, most of the submarines that have gone down over the years are Russian submarines, Mir submarines, and right. um, those cost a pretty penny. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> these expeditions are enormously expensive. Right, of course. And uh, hopefully, I mean, this is pioneering research, and I think that's, that's what we really need to take away from this, that this is research that it will be applicable to underwater archaeology for decades. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because this is, this is groundbreaking types of work, and uh, this, is, this is R&D at its finest, and yeah. I think uh, that's what we're looking to. You know, I think the idea now is, you know, anytime you find a wreck, um, you're going you're gonna to see more and more of this happening where before they do anything, they do, they're going to make an image of the wreck, a, a really full-scale map, sonar image of the entire wreck, especially if it's strewn in many pieces like this. Um, it's sort of like, why, you know, why would you spend a lot of money poking around sort of haphazardly 
um, if you don't even know what's there. Uh, so t- take this sort of macro image and then use that to decide, all right, where, where should we allocate our resources? What should we explore? Right. Let's go there. That looks good. That looks really interesting. Let's spend our money on that. And I think that that's a, a pretty good uh, M.O., uh, or, or plan of attack um, when you when you have an, an archaeological site. So whether on land or underwater, uh, you know, and, figure out what you have first. Take an inventory, and then and then burrow in a little deep, deeper in, in specific places. And on that note, I think we're going to have to bring it to an end. Our time is up. I want to thank. Uh, the renowned author Hampton Sides for uh, providing some critically uh, compelling input into where underwater research is going thanks to the work that's been done on the Titanic. And I want to thank the audience for listening. And uh, we hope to see you next time. Until, ne- until then, uh, have a good evening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.